podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome back to the Rock Shock Talk podcast. I'm your host Andy Mitz, and I'm joined once again tonight by Steve Fetch. How, how you doing tonight, Fetch? Good. How you doing? I'm doing pretty good. So you took the week off with the uh, with the Vikings losing, unfortunately. Yeah, I've got to start um, with that already. All right. Yeah. Well, and and I uh, ended up doing an episode early last week because I went in for my hand surgery and got to watch the uh, the, uh, the Oklahoma game um, heavily under the influence. So. Um, yeah, it's been a it's been a really crazy week, not only for us personally, but also then you know Kansas um, and and all the results that they had. So let's let's go ahead and jump right into it. Um, I don't want to talk too much about the Oklahoma game one because it was a loss. Uh, I don't know that we can necessarily learn too much from it at this point, given the fact that Kansas almost won the game anyway. Um, but were there any big takeaways from that? And and I think the main thing I want to know is given ESPN's love affair with Trey Young, were you really that impressed by him? Um, in that in that game, I mean, he had he had 26 points, but I believe he had like 39 shots or something ridiculous like that. Um, you know, was was he as impressive as as you've come to or as, as ESPN is trying to make us believe he is, or is it just a lot of hype for a guy in in a season where they're just trying to find a good story to talk about all the time? Uh, so first, you're you're actually thinking of the Oklahoma State game when you had a, a ton of shots. I know you were. Oh. You were under under the knife and, and under uh, narcotics, so I'll, I'll give you a pass on that one. But that was the game where, you know, after the Oklahoma State game, there was a lot of uh, backlash as far as is he shooting too much and stuff. So oh, that's he only right. shot right. So he only shot nine times uh, from the field against Kansas and, and the twelve free throws. Yeah, I I mean I'm I'm impressed with him. I think he's really good. I think there's definitely things you can do. Um, to maybe take him out of his game a little bit as far as you blitz him on those ball screens and you try to turn him into a passer more so than a shooter and you don't let him get off those uh, deep threes that he likes to take and stuff. So I think Kansas did um, an okay job with him. Certainly they could have done better and, and certainly I think that they will do better um, in Lawrence. You know, one thing is he was, you only missed two shots all night and, and, you know, obviously some of that is because he didn't take a ton of them, but uh, just kind of had his uh, kind of had control of the game um, all night. Five turnovers is really about the only thing that you could uh, sneeze at, and that's why I say you kind of got to do a little bit better job of uh, you know forcing him to be a passer rather than a scorer. Because I think you know, even though he leads the uh, country in assist rate and the Big Twelve in assist rate, obviously, I think he would rather be a scorer. Uh, if possible, and I think that probably gives them the best chance to win, too. So I would really look uh, in that next matchup for Kansas to try and turn him into even more of a passer and, and not let him get going as a scorer. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely was impressed with Trey Young. Um, I just, unfortunately, you know, it's it's like a lot of times where you have a, a player becomes a national story in, in any sport. You know, the the media likes to hammer it to death. Um, you know, I was watching, well, you know, we, we had the comment on, on Twitter, the fact that they did like a Trey Young biopic essentially in the middle of our game uh, against Kansas State on Monday. Uh, 
You know, they had to show pictures of him in like middle school or something like that, like with like three minutes left in our game, even when the, you know, it, it wasn't completely out of the question that K-State could potentially come back at that point, although it sure felt like it. Um, you know, and then and then watching the game last night between Baylor and Oklahoma, you know, they had what normally would be the bar where they would show, you know, the the uh, stats of the guy that just scored or he just pulled down the big rebound or, you know, show random snippets throughout the game. They literally just had a bar that showed Trey Young's stat line the entire night long. It just stood, you know, it just sat there the the entire night. And then they still, you know, flashed over to the side when he scored something. They they added additional stats over there. So the the, the fact that, that Trey Young has just kind of become the story of anything even tangentially related to Oklahoma is very, very tiring. Um, you know, obviously he's a great player. He is a great story, how he's been able to kind of just take over. And, and, and he's, I mean, he's the runaway national player of the year at this point. But I'm definitely kind of getting tired of it being all about Trey Young all the time. I would like to kind of hear more about the other guys that are playing, the other guy, you know, the other, the actual teams that are playing instead of just some guy that happens to be in the same conference. But, uh, but yeah, I was definitely Im- impressed with him. I, I, I felt that, that Oklahoma did a really good job executing their game plan. You know, we actually had talked last time about the, uh, I guess what, what the rest of KU Twitter is, is now christening the Pokadoke strategy and Oklahoma really bought into that. Baylor started it. Um, you know, really getting Yudoka to, to the foul line, and, and Oklahoma just bought in completely, uh, fouling him multiple times. Obviously, there was a bunch of questions about whether Bill Self did the right thing or not. You had the article say, saying that he was 100% right to leave him in there at that point. And, you know, to be honest, I, 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 I agree with you to some point, but I almost would have preferred, and, and, I, and I think you probably would agree with me on this point, but definitely let me know if, if, if you don't. I would prefer that Bill Self, instead of worrying about whether to keep Doke in at the end of the game, would just keep him in in the first half when he gets two fouls. Let him play. And, you know, if he gets that third, then go ahead and pull him out. But let him play more time in the first half uh, where he can probably have a bigger impact on the game and isn't going to be just automatically fouled um, instead of worrying about whether, you know, we have to pull him or leave him in the, in, in the end of the game. What are your what are your thoughts on all of that? That I just kind of yeah, I, I think you're you you hit a hundred percent correct that if you are going to take him out, if teams are going to follow him late in a close game, then you have to leave him in in the first half if he gets two fouls. Because what's the point of taking him out and saying, well, we don't want him to pick up a third or a fourth if he's going to have three or four fouls with four minutes left and you're going to take him out anyway? You might as well uh, get the most minutes out of him and and really. Uh, even though Mitch Lightfoot has definitely played a lot better as of late, you have to get the maximum amount of Udo Kazabuki minutes that you can. Um, as to the whether it was smart or not to take to take him out or not, I, I still think that leaving him in is the correct call and is the the call that works best uh, or the the strategy that works best over time. Uh, now, some of it is obviously uh, matchup dependent, so. If, for instance, I mean, Oklahoma was able to dump it into the post. And, and again, like, you know, we say all the time about Mitch Lightfoot, definitely uh, coming along as a player and everything, but probably is never going to be a really good post defender just because of his size. Um, so when you're able to, to throw it in and get almost a free two points uh, with Mitch Lightfoot down there, uh, it's really tough to uh, take Yudoka Azabuki out uh, in crunch time, regardless of what is going to happen at the other end of the floor. And then at the other end of the floor, you know, uh, 
yeah, he's not a very good free throw shooter, but uh, even if he's shooting 40% and, and you can, you know, do all the, and I, I did all the math in the post. I'm not going to go over it again, obviously, but, um, you know, you, you play it out enough times and, and they're going to score enough points uh, from those free throws to, to win the game. And it's certainly going to look ugly, but if you start following with two minutes left or whatever, there just isn't really enough time to, to make up uh, that point differential uh, unless you can dump it inside for a free two points. Like, uh, you know, you kind of can with Yudoka Azubuki off the floor. Now, uh, against Kansas State, um, even though the Wildcats were doing a pretty good job of, of getting into the lane and scoring at the rim, uh, they were kind of doing it with the drive. And Mitch Lightfoot is a, a pretty good help, uh, help defender, rim protector. So in that sense, uh, or in that case, it, it makes a little bit more sense to leave him in there. Uh, you still have some of that defense at the rim um, in K-State was uh, not really going to that either. They were taking a lot of kind of guarded mid-range twos and stuff. So uh, in that case, I think it made sense uh, to take him off the floor and, and have Mitch in. Um, but in the Oklahoma game, again, when, you know, you could you could just dump it inside and, and get three points off a post-up, I, I still think it was correct to, to leave him in. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I definitely have, have to agree there, so. All right, let's go ahead and jump from the Oklahoma game over to Texas A&M over the weekend. Um, I, I don't know that I necessarily like the Big 12 SEC challenge right in the middle of conference play. You know, we've had this discussion in the past as well, but, you know, if, if you're going to have it, you might as well go ahead and, and win it. And I think Kansas did a really good job of, of you know, playing in such a way that they were able to take advantage of Texas A&M, even though they had that size inside. Um this is another one of those games where they got up to a big lead, looked like they were going to give it all back completely. Never really got to that point, but it was closer than it probably should have been. Um, what were your overall thoughts from that game? Were there any real big takeaways you had from there, um, or was it kind of just a like a you know a game that didn't really mean anything in the overall scheme of things that you didn't really learn anything from? I think it, it was a, a really um... A good game to win, obviously. You know, A&M is kind of like the worst opponent uh, this year because they have a ton of talent, um, but they've had so many guys hurt and stuff that the record just isn't there. So if you lose, it's it's a bad loss, uh, but they're certainly talented enough to, to give you a loss. So uh, definitely, I think, you know, maybe even a little bit more important than like the game last year against Kentucky uh, to win just to kind of avoid a bad loss. Um and even though it, it doesn't count in the standings and, and obviously is not as important as a Big 12 game, it, it still, I think, was uh, a good win for NCAA tournament seeding purposes. And uh, hopefully they can, um, you know, I don't think a one seed is going to happen, and I don't think it's very important. But I think more importantly, with, with the first two rounds being in Wichita and then there being a, a regional in Omaha, it would be nice to be able to go Wichita-Omaha um, but obviously we can we can talk about that in a month or so. But right, right, right. Uh, it, it was it was kind of a weird game uh, because they got out to a, a pretty big lead. Um, I think they were up what like 18 or something like that at halftime, uh, and then A and M kind of clawed back into it a little bit. But it was just never never really in doubt. There was kind of that uh, mark with about I don't know four minutes left or so when they had kind of worked it down a little bit, but. Uh, there was never really the thought that Kansas was going to lose that game. So it was almost just, you know, you would have liked to see them maybe get some rest uh, for Devontae Graham. And, of course, he played 40 minutes. 
And you would have liked to see, right. you know, maybe uh, D'Souza or, or Sam Cunliffe get a little bit of playing time, and they had a, a combined two minutes. Um, so that wasn't great. But other than that, it was just kind of a kind of a coast to a win um, game yeah. that we haven't really seen a lot of from from this team this year against good opponents, at least. Yeah, and looking at looking at uh, Ken, Ken Palm, it looks like Cunliffe didn't even play. Did, did he check in for like a couple seconds and then get pulled out? Uh, I don't think so, but yeah, uh, okay. D'Souza got, got two minutes, so that's right. why I say a combined two minutes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like, I, I mean, and I've noticed, you know, as much talk as there was about Kansas getting reinforcements in D'Souza and Cunliffe at the, at the semester break, you know, they really haven't been playing very much. Now, granted, they haven't, they haven't really been able to show anything in the time that they did get, but it also kind of seems for, for a team that we've talked so much about depth issues and needing to get guys rest, Bill Self doesn't really seem to have any patience for allowing them to play through anything and actually get an opportunity to show anything. I mean, DeSouza was a, was a high schooler, you know, less than a month ago, and he's obviously had issues when he's come in, you know, lots of turnovers and, um, you know, miss, miss connections on passes and things like that. But, you know, making that those connections in practice is completely different than doing it in game situation. And so, you know, the fact that he hasn't had any kind of time to work through that, it's not really a surprise. He hasn't been able to get on the floor. Um, but, you know, for all the talk about how important it was going to be to have guys like this, Bill Self doesn't seem to be acting like it's that important to have these guys because he's not giving them the opportunity to play through and develop the way we need them to if we're expecting them to contribute come March. So it'll be really interesting to see if any of that changes. Maybe that now we're getting in kind of the, the softer part of the schedule, um, you know, with Oklahoma State coming up. Uh, a lot of these, these games against the lower tier conference opponents at home instead of on the road. So the hope is that is that we can get them more involved. But, yeah, it's just been really strange to hear about how much we needed these guys depth-wise, and yet now they're not even really playing at all. Yeah, and one thing, you're right, he, he doesn't really seem to let them work through a lot of mistakes. Sam Cunliffe got forced into some playing time due to fouls. I guess DeSosa did too a little bit uh, in the game against K-State, but certainly did not really get a chance. And, and granted, neither of them played well at all. Um, and neither of them really has played well at all this season when they've been in. But I, I have to imagine it's kind of tough to play well when you know that if you make a mistake or something like that, you're going to be yanked for the rest of the game. But then again, you know, I like I've said here multiple times, I don't really doubt Bill Self about these things anymore because I'm not watching them in practice and, and I have no idea how they're playing in practice. And uh, self is the the best for a reason, so he knows a lot better than I do as far as who should be playing. But I just think that you know both of them would give Kansas maybe a little bit of something that they're missing and and be able to get some guys some rest when they need it. Yeah, yeah. I just you know I was looking at it and Clay Young hasn't played in forever. Like it's been a long time. And Christian, um, but they both have more minutes overall on the year than both DeSouza and Cunliffe do. Um, I mean, granted, the, the and and I think in terms of like games that they've appeared in, they're getting pretty close at this point. But Clay Young has gotten significant minutes in earlier games. Um, you would just you would just think that with how how much he's talked up, how important it was to have these guys coming in to address depth issues, that he would try to find some way to get them in longer. I mean, I understand the the you know not wanting to drop any of the games that we have uh, coming up with the, how competitive the Big Twelve is, but. Um, you know, this, this kind of uh, ties into some of the conversations that have been had um, 
about, you know, comparing Bill Self to some other coaches where the idea is that Bill Self is a coach that worries about winning now in the regular season as opposed to doing everything that needs to be done to build a team, you know, and and get it ready for March. Like March isn't the main goal. Um, obviously, it's nice to, to go on a big run, get to the Final Four and things like that. But it seems that Bill Self is more of a, I want to win as many games as I possibly can now, you know, to get ourselves set up with a good seed, as opposed to let's take a couple extra losses now and develop some guys that may be useful for us later in the in the in the tournament. I, I, I'm not saying that one of those is like the wrong way to do it, and one of them is the right way. It's just when you you know when you when you talk about developing a team over the course of the season, um, it, it seems like he's got very very um, defined ways that he wants to do it, and it doesn't necessarily mesh with what he seems to be advocating for when he's talking in his interviews. So. Um, I don't know that I really had a point with that, <laughs> but it was just something interesting that it kind of tied in with a bunch of different conversations people were having on the site. Right. I I think he's just super competitive and wants to win every game. Which which, which isn't bad. Right. I, I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. And I think, uh, like people kind of pointed out with the Azubuki thing, he left him in on the free throw line against Oklahoma with the thought that, they're probably going to need him to make a couple in March. So he more or less, well, if, if you think him leaving Azubuki in was the wrong thing, uh, he more or less sacrificed that win uh, to get them better prepared for March. So True. it's one of those things where maybe the, the reality and perception are, are a little bit different. But I do think that he definitely uh, has maybe some blinders on during the game where he just does what he thinks is best for winning that individual game uh, every game, regardless of uh, its importance or, or time of the year. Yeah. All right. So I guess final thoughts on that, I don't think are related specifically to Texas A&M, but maybe on the Big 12 SEC challenge as a whole. The SEC won this year for the first time ever, taking six of the matchups after a, a horrible collapse down the stretch by Oklahoma State and an even worse collapse down the stretch by West Virginia against Kentucky. Um you know, I mean, do you do you think there were – I saw some people trying to kind of say, oh, well, the SEC is so much better than we gave them credit for, or the converse saying, well, maybe the Big 12 isn't as good as we thought. I don't I don't know why I would go that far to really say this means anything about the, the, the conferences as a whole. I think there were some really bad matchups for the Big 12 in terms of who they got matched up with the SEC. And Results like TCU losing at Vanderbilt was just a completely ridiculous thing. I mean, there's no reason they should have lost. TCU is a much better team than Vanderbilt, but you know, when, when you when when you have some unlucky things like that kind of happen, um, there's not a whole lot you can do. Some things are going to look worse. Uh, you know, there's a reason that we remember the huge upsets in the in, in the NCAA tournament because they're not things you really think ever should happen, but somehow they always they always end up happening every year. You know, we have some big ones like that. So do you read into any of those those results at all? Uh, I mean, do you think that this kind of challenge is beneficial in terms of determining conference strength or anything like that? Or is it kind of just one of those things they throw in the middle of the conference season to draw a lot of eyeballs and so people have things to talk about? Yeah, I think it's just, you know, obviously for, for that day, you know, everyone in college basketball is talking about the Big 12 and the SEC. So in that sense, it's it's good to get eyes on both the leagues and stuff. As far as conference strength, I don't think it says anything. It's 10 matchups. So, you know, who who knows? Um, one thing that some people 
pointed out is that the the back half of the Big 12 is really the half that blew it. You know, the top six teams uh, went four and two. Obviously, the the big comeback in Morgantown. Otherwise, it would have been five and one. Um, and obviously, you know, TCU is playing without Jalen Fisher. Otherwise, they probably win at Vanderbilt. So obviously, you know, everyone's kind of banged up and facing injuries and stuff. But um, I don't really think it says anything. You know, the the sample of hundreds of games over the course of the season says a lot more to me than how teams are playing on one day of the year. So definitely, uh, definitely wouldn't be worried about that. And also, it's kind of funny how something like that can can get people to root for their rivals. I mean, I was, right. I was seeing I was seeing Texas Tech fans cheering for Texas and stuff like that, and. It, like I would never cheer for you know I don't I guess there isn't really a a team in the Big Twelve that I consider like a, a big rival or anything like that. But if Missouri was still in the Big Twelve, I definitely would not be cheering for them just to win some made up one day challenge. Right, right. I would be the I would be the guy that says I want everybody but Missouri to win, so we can you know everybody could rib Missouri for saying oh well you screwed up a perfect you know slate for us. Right. So, but yeah, yeah, no, I know. I definitely agree with that. It is, it is kind of strange how the teams normally you're like, oh, I want this team to lose because it would help us in the conference race, or you know, I don't particularly like this one. It's like, oh no, these are all Big Twelve teams, so we want them all to win today, but that's it. So, yeah, I found myself rooting for Baylor, um, which I found a little strange, even when they were getting plastered by Florida. Um, you know, I've always kind of liked TCU, except for when we play them. So I was, I was rooting for them. I was really hoping they would pull it off. Um, but like that West Virginia and Kentucky game, I ended up turning it off after the half thinking, oh, well, you know, I'm not really, not really too excited. I, you know, I would love to see West Virginia lose a game like this just because, you know, I don't, I don't like the style that they play. I think it's really bad to watch. And we've had that discussion too, multiple times. Um, you know, so it's like, it'd be perfect for them to go ahead and lose. But then again, I also don't want Kentucky to have, you know, the ability to, to point to that as a marquee win. So um, yeah, I think I think that's probably the only one that I wasn't really rooting hard for as a Big 12 school was was West Virginia for whatever reason. So, but yeah, okay. Well, we'll we'll go ahead and leave that Big 12 SEC challenge there. Let's go ahead and move on. Obviously, the big with, with the Oklahoma loss, the big story turned to Kansas State hosting Kansas on Big Monday with the opportunity to drop Kansas down into what would essentially turn into a five-way tie uh, for the for the Big 12 lead with the understanding, you know, that Oklahoma was probably going to go ahead and win, that West Virginia and Texas Tech were probably going to go ahead and win. Um, Kansas, with all of that pressure on them, you know, goes in and gets a big win. Um, I say big because, I mean, honestly, they won by 14 points, and they were leading by double digits for most of the night. I think there was like a one, like a two-minute stretch where Kansas State got it down to single digits, got as close as four, I think, at one point. Um, but Kansas then you know, push the lead way back up. Um, I mean, it, it's hard to not say that this was a dominating win from start to finish. It didn't necessarily seem like it, um, but but what were your overall thoughts on that game? Were there any players that really stood out that you weren't expecting to stand out? Um, well, go ahead. I think, I think the thing that stood out more than anything was that this was kind of a vintage, you know, 2013, 2014, whatever KU win where, it was all the defense that that won it for them. Um, K-State came in as one of the best offenses in the league. They were actually the best shooting offense from both two and three and uh, scored just .84 points per possession, which is absurdly low, especially for a team that 
uh, is clicking as well offensively as they were and shot 39.5% from two, which again is, is really low. Um, that's, you know, like what team shoot when Jeff Withy was patrolling the lane. So yeah, uh, some, some of it was certainly uh K-State taking some tough shots and, and not making them. And uh, some of it was they, for some reason, didn't know what to do against that zone. But some of it was definitely that KU did a really good job buckling down defensively did a really good job uh, playing Cartier Giara on the ball, uh, unlike last time, um, and, and forcing guys like you know Barry Brown into into some tough looks. So no one other than than Dean Wade really did a lot uh, for the Wildcats. So offensively, there wasn't really anyone that stood out as far as a surprise. I think everyone, you know, certainly people played well, but I don't know that there was anyone that that really played above expectations. But just defensively, uh, you know, a great effort from them. I do wonder if maybe they're going to go to that zone uh, a little bit more. Um, I kind of made this point on Twitter, and, and I haven't really looked into this. This is more of a kind of a, a theory in passing. But uh, for all of the um, improvements that Svi and Vic have made defensively on the ball, they're still not very good off the ball, and they get right. lost. And you can see it a lot when teams run – really simple pick and roll stuff where they just get lost uh, either when they're guarding the guy with the ball or they're guarding the screener or they're just guarding a, a shooter in the corner. Um, they'll either, you know, suck down into the lane too far or, or what have you. Um, but running a zone, even one kind of as simple as one they were playing last night, forces them to kind of stay tethered to an area and they don't wander too much and, and don't get lost. And as a result, they can get back to shooters and those threes are a little bit more guarded and, uh, as I've said, you know, Speed doesn't have a, a ton of length for like an NBA prospect, but he's still six eight and has a wingspan that's you know close enough to his height. So that's that's enough to bother a six two six three guard who's shooting a three. Um, so I do think that you know maybe they're gonna go to that zone a little bit more. And, and the other thing too is people always talk about zone defenses and they give up a lot of offensive rebounds and. You know, Kansas gives up a lot of offensive rebounds anyway, so I don't really know that the zone would really impact that too much. Uh, it is worth noting, I guess, that they did a really good job on the defensive glass on Monday, but uh, again, for the season, hasn't been good. But yeah, offensively, uh, they were fine. Certainly lit the world on fire in the first half there before really uh, cooling off in the second half, but it was certainly the, the defense that uh, just kind of overwhelmed K-State and, and got them their, their second comfortable win in a row and and uh you gotta wonder i guess if this maybe starts a trend of maybe some more comfortable wins for kansas yeah and and first of all about your point with the zone yeah i definitely think the zone is a weapon that they're going to use a lot more often this year um honestly i'm surprised they haven't gone to it you know earlier because the zone is typically a, a pretty good weapon you can use when you've got guys that are in foul trouble down low to kind of take some of that pressure off of them um, with all the guys rotating and, and you know, kind of taking care of particular areas. Because a lot of the problems Ozabuke has had is when, when he tries to stick with a guy, he's a little slow catching up to them at times, and so he's in bad position to defend. But, as you know, sitting in that zone is a lot easier for him to kind of stick with the guy that he needs to, who's in his general area, get good positioning to try to work on defending the rim and things like that. So uh, I'm a little surprised they haven't gone to it earlier. I definitely think that's something that they're going to do going forward a lot more than we've seen. Um, now, granted, it, it probably won't be quite as successful because Kansas State was just shooting abysmally. Um, but 
you know, I definitely think, especially, you know, as we were talking about earlier, if, if, you know, Azubuke gets two fouls, like eight minutes into the first half, then go ahead and switch to that zone to allow him to stay in the game, not have as much of a risk of getting that third foul and still being somewhat effective there. And then being able to kind of dominate on over on the offensive side as well. So I definitely, you know, I think that's something that they need to kind of explore more. Hopefully it's something that Bill is actually looking at. Um, but again, you know, we don't we don't get to see as much as, as Bill does. So if he decides the zone isn't the way to go, then I'm I'm not going to be too upset about it. But uh, I definitely think it's, it's it's a tool that they've kind of shown it can be effective. And I get the feeling that they're going to go ahead and use it a little bit more. Um, but then kind of to move on, uh, your your point about it being the second comfortable win, I think, honestly, we're at the point now where everybody is fatigued from the tough conference play. Um, you know, it's it's a lot harder nine games into the conference season to really be getting after everybody the way that you can kind of get up for a Kansas game. So now, you know, it's, there's that fatigue factor, not only that KU's been dealing with, but everybody in the league is kind of dealing with a similar one now, either with injuries or just having so many big games that they've had to get up for. Um, I think I think Kansas' natural ability and that talent gap that we've expected to see at the top end isn't going to be um, mitigated by, you know, the, the better depth that these other teams have. So I definitely wouldn't be surprised to see a lot more, you know, big margins of victory for us. Um, not, not only that, but the fact that we're not, we're not going to have as many difficult games in the back half of the schedule, um, which is going to be very helpful too. So I think it's, I think it's kind of both that everybody else is getting worn down just like we were, um, but also, our schedule is going to get a lot easier. We're going to have more games at home. Uh, we're going to have more winnable road games. You know, and not saying that we didn't. I mean, we've. I believe we're what four and one in road games so far. Um, which, which I saw a stat on Twitter. I don't know if it was you that tweeted it or someone else that said that. You know, or I, I believe it was you and on on the site, uh, Twitter that was saying that Kansas has more. Big 12 road wins than everyone else that's tied for second and I believe third combined. Um, and maybe I'm miss I'm misquoting that, but uh, you know that's that really is kind of the key to why Kansas has been so successful in the Big 12 is that they're able to get those road wins in places that you normally wouldn't think, um, or that other teams like Oklahoma having trouble in K- at K State. Um, you know, so, some of these other teams have been having so many problems with so. Yeah, I'll, I'll hit you with some stats here. So, go ahead. Of the uh, of the 32 conferences in Division One basketball, the Big 12 has the second highest home winning percentage, which is 70 and a half percent. There are there are 13 road wins uh, in the Big 12 this year. Kansas has four of them. Oklahoma, Texas Tech, and West Virginia, the next three teams chasing them, combined have four of them. So. That's crazy. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's pretty nuts, and it's it's almost weird in a league where everyone. I guess I don't I don't know if it's weird or you would expect it to be so high in a league that's so good. I guess I would think that some teams would be able to maybe go on the road and and win, but I guess when there's no true awful team, it's kind of tough to have a, a free road win. So maybe it does make sense that there wouldn't be a lot of road wins, but. Yeah, everyone talks about Allen Fieldhouse and, and Allen Fieldhouse is great and everything like that, but I really do think what sets uh, Kansas apart and, and what sets Bill Self apart is the fact that you can count on at least two to three really big road wins 
per Big 12 season. And that is, as much as anything, is why Kansas is on its way. It really looks like now that they're on their way to uh, a 14th straight, which I got to admit I was uh, a little, you know, in doubt about uh, at the start of the Big 12 season. Yeah, yeah, and and you're not the only one. I mean, there was lots of people that were having problems with that. And after they'd lost to Texas Tech, you know, there was lots of people. I had this discussion with David last week, you know, about at what point do we think Kansas wrapped it up and, um, you know, he was talking about getting a two-game lead. Uh, I said it needed to be kind of be three. Um, I mean, at this point, I, I'm I'm getting tempted to kind of change my thoughts on that. That if you know, if we get into next week and and Oklahoma loses again or something like that, um, I could potentially see you know thinking that it's wrapped up at that point. But um, yeah, I mean. It, it's it's really really um, getting a lot harder to imagine that Kansas is not going to win it again this year, just with all the way that the results have 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 kind of uh, turned out at this point. I mean, Oklahoma bit, had to hang on at the end of the game to beat Baylor at home last night. Um, I was just looking at the scores, and as we're recording this, Texas Tech is in a dogfight with Texas, I believe, uh, but Iowa State just blasted West Virginia at home. So, you know, I mean, it's it's really hard to win on the road in this league. And even then, it's really hard. I mean, it's hard to win at home, too. Like, it, you know, even winning at home, it's not like the home team has been blowing out the the, the visiting team in most cases. So, um, you know, the the two teams that are lowest, Iowa State and Baylor, are still giving giving good fights to everybody else in the conference. So, um I guess we'll, we'll go ahead and jump into the the conference races. Or actually, before we do that, any, any other final thoughts about the K State game? Well, I, I do uh, want to shout out a, a couple of people here. Um, first, uh, Malik Newman just continues to be really good. Um, kind of had a, 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 I guess a, a bad start would be fair to say uh, to the season, and, and even a bad start to the Big Twelve season, but. Uh, his last four games have been really good, and, and hopefully it's not just a hot streak. But, you know, a lot of people kind of forget this with the fact that he transferred and, and kind of has struggled. But he's really the guy on this team that has more pedigree than anyone else. I mean, he's played in uh, US, a bunch of USA basketball world championship events. He was a McDonald's All-American, top 10 kid out of high school and stuff. And, you know, his, his Big 12 numbers right now, over 50% from two, uh, almost at 40%. Uh, from three, uh, one of the best uh, defensive rebounders uh, as far as guards go in the league, uh, playing really good defense. I would say he's probably the best perimeter defender on the team uh, right now. Obviously, that can change, but doing a, a lot better job at, at getting inside and getting to the line, too. So he's really kind of turned himself into, he's not like a go-to scorer by any means, but he's really turned himself into a, a really complete player, uh, and that just continued again uh, against K-State, where it really seemed like late in the game where they needed uh, a basket or, or needed someone to get to the free throw line, uh, it was Malik Newman as much as anyone who, who got the call to do that. Uh, and then the other guy is, is Mitch Lightfoot. Um, you know, Yudok Azubuki had his, his foul troubles and had probably his worst game of the season. Uh, Mitch Lightfoot actually played more minutes than him. Didn't score, but didn't pick up one of those horrific uh, fouls on a moving screen. Uh, had three blocks, uh, did did a good job on the glass, and, and did a good job defensively protecting the rim as far as, you know, bothering people. Drew a couple of charges. Uh, just an overall really good game from him. So those are kind of the, 
the two guys, and obviously, you know, Spee and Graham and, and Vic were good as well, but those are the two guys that I think deserve a little bit of a, a special shout-out. Yeah, and, and just to kind of pull on that, you know, Newman is developed into the kind of player that we thought he was going to be coming into the year. Um, you know, we thought he was going to be a dynamic store, a, a dynamic scorer, a lockdown defender for the most part. I mean, he's he's taken a little while to develop under Bill Self, but but he's really gotten to the point where we thought he was going to be. Um, you know, I think all of us at the beginning of the year had him in like the basically the the top three uh, for who we thought was going to be like the most valuable player. So I'm not really surprised to see him there now. It just yeah, took a lot longer he, than we thought. And so. he he might be at this point. Uh, it's certainly him and Sphere kind of battling for that third spot. And Sphere again was great, obviously. Um, I don't yeah. really look into Sphere's kind of struggled from two, but he kind of is the guy that gets saddled with some of those late shot clock shots where he's got to take a tough pull up or or take kind of a tough runner or whatever. So I, I don't really read a ton into that percentage, but. Shooting great from three, obviously. So it's it's really, I think, kind of between him and Newman for that like third best player on the team. And and the other thing too is, you know, Self uh, at the beginning of the year said that he expected Newman to be an All Conference guy, and he's probably not going to be a first teamer, but he's got definitely a shot at being a second teamer. So Self Self might have been right taking kind of the long road to get there, but right nonetheless. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and kind of the flip side of that, you know, I've heard. With with Newman coming on recently, I've heard a lot of complaints about Vic falling off, and I kind of got a little bit of a different take on that. You know, the the idea of thinking that, again coming into the year, most of us had Vic as kind of like the fifth or sixth option on this team, um, but when Newman was struggling early and taking time to adjust, Vic was the guy that was able to kind of step up and fill that void, um, and so I think that set people's expectations for him a little higher than they realistically should have been coming into the year. Um, and, and so, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily see it as, oh, well, Newman's coming on and luckily because Vic is, is, you know, falling off. I think it's to the point now where Newman has finally gotten that confidence and Bill Self is now confident enough in him to kind of give him the role that we thought he was going to have all year long. So that now Vic can naturally take more of a backseat to a guy like Newman and let him absorb some of the role that he was filling when we just didn't have a guy. So, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you kind of, we're talking about how well Vic was playing. His stat line wasn't as good as we were used to seeing from him early in the year, but I really do think that's just a result of the dynamic changing where he doesn't need to be the guy anymore because the one we were expecting to step up in Newman is now actually doing that and taking that role back. So, um, and, and then, of course, yeah, light, Lightfoot, I continue to be surprised by how much of an impact he makes even though he doesn't score. He still reminds me of a Kevin Young um, in that, you know, I think it was his junior year where he was just that energy guy that came off the bench, didn't really do much in the stats, but had a huge impact when he was in there because he was just bouncing all over the place and, and was able to make big plays when we needed him. So, um, yeah, I'm I'm definitely happy to see Light Lightfoot fill that, that energy guy role and be able to fill in so well when Azubuke is stuck on the bench. So, all right, any other final thoughts before we move on? Uh, no, I, I think conference conference race time sounds good to me. Yep, sounds good. So, so like I said uh, earlier today, West Virginia did lose. Uh, we are recording this. It's about it's about nine o'clock now, uh, Kansas time. Uh, so, so Texas Tech, I believe, is getting ready to go into half. Uh, last I saw, they were only leading Texas by four. Uh, oh, it looks like now at halftime, it is a it is a going to be like a seven or six point game. So. Uh, but anyway, 
So yeah, so uh but Iowa State just completely destroyed West Virginia earlier, ninety three to seventy seven. I think I think we've gotten now to the point where it's safe to say that West Virginia is definitely not the team that we thought they were gonna be going into the year. And I mean you know, they're still a really good team. They could still make a push if Kansas were to falter. Um, but, you know, I'm not I'm not even sure at this point that West Virginia is the the going to be the second place or best contender uh, to really push KU going into the, the end of the conference race. Um, what, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, would, would you still put West Virginia at number two and, and teams like Oklahoma and Kansas State and uh, – and, and Texas Tech at three, or is there some concern now for them if if you're a, a Mountaineer fan? Yeah, I really don't know. You obviously have to be a little worried with this three-game losing streak. You can certainly, even though it was a home loss, you can certainly kind of uh, forgive them for losing to Kentucky, who's a, a talented athletic team, even if they have some issues of their own. But losing to, to TCU uh, without Jalen Fisher, uh, losing to an Iowa State team that quite frankly is not very good. Those are, are rough losses. I, I don't I don't really know what the issue is. Uh they've had some issues with their freshman Teddy Allen who has kinda I guess had some on court attitude problems, which is kinda weird. Uh Daxter Miles was out for this Iowa State game because he I think he has the flu they said, which is going around. Um so that's not great. So maybe there's you know, I guess to to play Twitter doctor here. Maybe maybe the the whole team has kind of battled that a little bit, and given their style of play, um, they're having some energy issues, and you can't really have energy issues when they play with with that style. But I, I don't know. Um, West Virginia certainly relies on creating more shot volume than other teams. That's that's how they win. They've never really been a hyper efficient team in terms of scoring. Never really been a great team as far as defending uh, in the half court. Uh, the way they get you is they force a lot of turnovers to create those extra possessions, and then they attack the offensive glass. But when they miss, they create those extra possessions and you know kind of easier putbacks. And they haven't really been doing that as of late. Kentucky uh, rebounded like half their misses uh, against West Virginia, so they were kind of able to to flip the script and and get the the extra possessions. And then tonight uh, against Iowa State, uh, Iowa State turned it over on just uh, 12% of their possessions, which is really low for anyone, but especially for a team uh, that plays like West Virginia does. And from the little bit that I watched, uh, West Virginia didn't really press them a lot. So when you can play a half-court game with West Virginia, you're probably going to beat them. And I guess I don't really know why they did that. And the other thing, too, with them is their offensive strategy lately kind of seems to be dribble around a little bit and then take a guarded jump shot, which is also really bad. So I think they probably just have uh, some kinks to work out, and maybe there's an issue if the Big 12 kind of knows how to play against that press a little bit more now so it's not as effective. But um, I certainly think that they're probably still – the second best team in the league, you know, every, every team in the league, including Kansas, um, has its flaws. It's just kind of a matter of which flaws are going to be, uh, most exploitable and, uh, which flaws are going to kind of show up more, um, down the stretch here. So, um, I don't really know, obviously, uh, I could see really any, uh, of those three teams, uh, finishing second. I really do think that Kansas has the upper hand on the title race, but, 
as far as which team's going to finish second. It's really anyone's guess at this point. And, and honestly, I mean, it might be K-State, even though they they lost last night. Yeah, yeah, even though they lost Monday. Um, oh, yeah. yeah, Monday, sorry. Yeah, no, no, it's all right, it's all right. Um, yeah, I mean, and and Ken Palm really agrees with you. I mean, you know, they have Kansas projected at 13-5, and five, but they also only have Kansas expected to lose one game you know, if you look at the, like individual games, the only game they're expected to lose is against Texas Tech at Texas Tech. So, um, and and even then, it's a you know, it's like a I think it's like forty seven percent. And of course, we all know that Bill Self has yet to be swept by a Big Twelve opponent in conference play. So, um, yeah, I mean, there's still a lot of things going for Kansas. Uh, it's definitely looking again to be kind of a, a Kansas stands alone while the rest of the conference beats up on each other. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm not confident in any of these teams yet. Uh, Texas Tech, I think, is, you know, if I had to put my money on someone right now, I would probably say that Texas Tech is probably going to finish second. Um, you know, they, and they'll probably be a game or two. Well, I would I would hope that they'd be within two games, um, just given the way that things are expected to turn out. But, you know, there's no saying that, you know, Kansas may win this league by a good three or four games the rate everything's going because they're the only one that seems to be able to win on the road. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's definitely going to be really interesting the, the way the rest of this race is going to turn out. But if you had told me that, you know, that this is where we would be even a week and a half ago, I don't know that I would have believed you. I would have thought I would have thought that Kansas was probably going to lose at Oklahoma, that they, they had a really good shot of losing at Kansas State. So, um, you know, we've been we've been talking every every single time of what's happening in the next you know week or two and if they can win. You know, if they can go 500 in those games, they're probably in good shape. And every single time, they've consistently outperformed that, and nobody else seems to even be able to come close um, in terms of the other, the other contenders. So, um, you know, the only other thing that's kind of interesting um, during the Big 12 SEC Challenge, they were talking about how, you know, every single one of the Big 12 teams at this point has a legitimate argument for some sort of consideration. Um, in the in in the NCAA tournament this year, I mean I I don't know I would have agreed with it at that point, but you know seeing Baylor almost beat Oklahoma and Iowa State beating West Virginia now I mean those are um, Baylor obviously still has a long way to go just because they don't have any wins, but it's not hard to imagine them being able to get wins. Iowa State at this point I mean their resume isn't phenomenal, but they do have some pretty big wins on there. Um, I'm trying to pull up their schedule right now just to see who else besides West Virginia. But, uh, oh, that's right. They beat Texas Tech. Um, I mean, that's it. They didn't really have a lot outside of the conference to really hang their hat on. But, you know, they've got two really good wins against Texas Tech and against West Virginia now. Um, that I could at least see them getting some sort of consideration. I wouldn't expect them. I wouldn't expect them to be to be really pushing for, you know, uh, in, inclusion in the NCAA tournament, unless they were to get another couple of good wins, you know, say that they beat Kansas um, at home, you know, in, in a couple of weeks here, uh, and and that they were able to steal one from again, they have Oklahoma and Kansas back to back. Say they pull off a huge shocker next week, uh, Saturday and Tuesday, you know, winning both those games, I, I think it would be hard to to argue that a team like that wouldn't wouldn't have a leg up on a lot of the other bubble teams even be like in the in the last four in how realistic do you think it is that the big 12 gets you know eight or nine teams in serious consideration for the NCAA tournament this year so i'm i'm certainly no 
uh, bracketologist by any means, but I definitely think there's a chance, especially when you look at the fact that, like you said, there's there's plenty of opportunities uh, for big wins in the Big 12s. Uh, there's you know really four or five teams that are kind of going to be hunting for like a top four or five seed, you would think. And so if you can knock off some of those teams, you, I think, have a chance to, to really make some hay um, and, and get into the tournament. Um, just now, as you were talking, I, uh, I looked into uh, um, it's uh, barttorvik.com. He's got a, a bracketology uh, section of his site, and he has uh, six, seven, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven uh, of the Big 12 teams uh, in as of right now with uh, Baylor and Oklahoma State and uh, Iowa State being the only teams out right, right now. Right. Um, but you look at it, and like you said, I mean, they all have some – and this is obviously, you know, not including Iowa State's win tonight, which they're going to need a lot more – wins than that obviously. Right, right. It's it's not enough to put him in on its own, but you know, they've shown that they're a formidable team at home, so I would right, not be they, surprised. You know, and right, I mean they, you know the other they thing still get Oklahoma sorry, no, go, no, ahead. No, go ahead. No, no, no. You you go ahead. <laughs> well I was just gonna say, I mean they get Oklahoma twice more. So you get both of those maybe. Uh who knows? Uh you know, they get Kansas at home. Who knows? I mean they they've definitely got a chance and then they certainly take the Big 12 tournament more seriously than anyone. So if maybe one of those surprise teams pulls off a couple of wins in the Big 12 tournament, maybe that gets you another uh, team in there. So certainly there's there's a chance to get eight or nine, but I would I would say probably seven is kind of the number that I'm going to settle on. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's realistic. But, I mean, I can also envision a scenario the way this is going that we have, you know, five or six teams or all. Uh, honestly, even more than I could see, you know, us having like seven teams that are all clustered around, um, you know, either a win above or a win below 500 in in the conference, just the way that everything has been going crazy. So, you know, if, if we got a scenario like that where that happened, where like everybody is clustered around nine and nine and Kansas wins the league by like four games and, you know, maybe there's like one team like Baylor, maybe that that is, you know, five or six games below or something crazy like that, you know. I don't know how you would separate them all, um, especially since in order for that to happen, a team like Iowa State's going to have to get a big win here or there, another one to add to their resume. So, yeah, we could definitely get it, see it get really interesting. Um, there's definitely a lot of chances to build the resume. It'll be fascinating to see who's actually able to do that the rest of the season. So, all right, any other final thoughts before we get to our sports minute for the day? Oh boy! No, I'm ready for the uh, sports minute. Dude. All right, what what do we have today? I know last time I asked for skeleton, um, and so we got all of those those track events. But what do you have for me today? So uh, since there's only two uh, podcasts, I assume we're going to have one next week anyway. You're right. Since so since this is the second to last podcast before the Olympics uh, start, I'm going to do a little bit something different. And uh, instead of doing uh, sports uh, for the next two podcasts, we're going to do. Um, Olympians to to kind of watch and, and have an eye on, and, and people who are kind of expected to to either do big things or, or do something for a first time or whatever. So perfect. Uh, this week it's going to be the the five non-Americans, uh, and then next week it's going to be the five Americans. So 
Uh, first up, uh, we've got uh, Stefan Kraft, who's a ski jumper from Austria. Uh, he is the 2017 world champion uh, in both the large and the normal hill events, and in this past season, won 12 of the 26 events on their World Cup tour. So uh, he's a he's a young guy. I think this is his first Olympic Games. Um, so uh, probably going to win one gold medal, might win two. Uh, nothing, nothing major. Just kind of an interesting uh, little uh, tidbit for him. So, uh, second, staying in Austria, Marcel Hersher, who is a downhill skier. Um, most people think he is the best skier in the world. He's won six straight overall World Cup titles, so that would certainly back that up. Uh, he does the slalom and the giant slalom, and the slalom is the one where they have like the poles sticking up, and it's kind of a shorter course with a lot of zigzags and you go around the poles and then the uh, giant solemn is kind of that but it's a it's a longer course where they have like the blue outline um on the painted on the snow uh kind of like they do with the downhill um but it's a again a shorter course and you kind of go uh around sticks rather than through big long gates so uh, he's the favorite to win both of those uh he's won two of the last three slalom world titles and was the silver medalist uh, in the slalom in 2014. Uh, one one interesting thing, I guess, about the slalom is that uh, one kind of false step, and you can miss a gate, and then if you if you miss a gate, you're disqualified. So uh, favorites have certainly had that happen to them before. Um, it would be a shock to see that happen to him, but stranger things have happened. Uh, third, and obviously, feel free to to jump in here at any time, but. Uh, third, uh, <laughs> since the Olympics are in South Korea, I figure we got to do at least one South Korean, right. uh, and, uh, South Korea's national sport or sport that they, uh, are most crazy about is short track speed skating. Uh, I'm going to butcher this, uh, pronunciation, so I apologize, but Yi Ra So, who is the, uh, world cup champion of the past short track season, Making his Olympic debut was kind of a, a surprise uh, inclusion on this team, kind of a surprise um, World Cup champion. And he and kind of the rest of this team that's not filled with big names, although I, I have no idea, you know, who the real big names are. But according to people who know short track speed skating, not really filled with big names, but but obviously filled with a lot of talent given the speed skating talent in that country. Looking for a little redemption as uh, South Korean men won zero short track speed skating medals at the last Olympics. But you got to think with the home court advantage or home ice advantage and uh, the fact that there's uh, kind of some judging involved when there's a crash that uh, maybe they're going to get a medal uh, one way or another. Um, right, right. Secondly, going to the longer speed skating is Sven Kramer from the Netherlands, who is the best long distance speed skater in the world. Uh, he won two gold medals and a silver medal in the 2014 Olympics. Uh, he's won uh, gold medals in back-to-back -back Olympics in the 5,000 meters. Uh, he does the 5,000 and the 10,000 meter, which is, I can't imagine skating 10,000 meters. Um, one interesting note about him was at the 2010 Olympics in Vancouver, he was cruising to uh, the gold medal but got disqualified because uh, so in speed skating, you do one lap around the outside, and then when you come around towards the start, you switch either to the inside lane or the outside lane. Right. And uh, in these longer races, they have a coach out on the ice that points them which one they go to because obviously, you know, you get exhausted and you you lose track and you don't want to pick 
pick wrong or whatever. And uh, his coach pointed him to the wrong lane, and so he got disqualified. So he skated the entire race, would have won the 10,000 meters by, you know, minutes, uh, but got disqualified because of that. And, and he, like, threw a fit and was throwing his equipment all over and stuff. And so uh, yeah. definitely, yeah, and, and uh, got silver at the last Olympics. So he's probably looking for gold in that 10,000 meters. And, and he's probably the favorite, and he's probably the favorite in the 5,000 as well. Yeah, uh, most definitely. And and then finally, um, Merit Bjorgen, who is a cross-country skier from Norway. Cross-country, obviously, is not, like, the most exciting event ever. But uh, she's got a chance to make some history. Uh, she's got 10 career medals, which is three away from the all-time lead in Winter Olympics history. Uh, six gold medals, which is two away from the all-time lead uh, in Olympic history. And even though she is 10th in the uh, kind of World Cup standings or whatever this year. Uh, she does have three gold medals in each of the last two Olympics, and uh, Norway is a, a really good cross-country skiing country in general, so she's got a really good chance to win at least one gold in the relay, and uh, given her success in the last couple Olympics, you got to think she's got uh, at least a chance uh, to, to break that record. Um, this is probably going to be her last Olympics, you can you can do cross-country skiing when you get older. She's 37, I believe, and you can do cross-country skiing when you get older, but uh, the issue, I think, is more of her actually making the team given all of the, the talent in Norway. So uh, probably, uh, probably going to do it, but this is her last chance to do it. So uh, that'll at least give you some reason to watch uh, cross-country skiing, which I like to watch, but I'm probably – one of only, you know, 20 people uh, in the country who like watching it. Yeah, I don't know that I would like, want to sit down and watch the whole race, but I would definitely be interested in, like, the highlights and watching snippets. I I, I kind of treat it the same way that I do, like, the, the Tour de France, where, you know, it's interesting to look at particular stages or, you know, particular tense moments or, or even, like, a NASCAR race, you know. It's like there's there's times where it's interesting – there's stories that make it interesting for a while, but I don't know that I'd be able to sit down and just watch the whole thing. Um, cross cross country skiing, though that that's not the one that's timed and they go individually, right? That like that's more like a marathon type thing where they all go at the same time. Uh, I believe they have different where so they have a they have a math start and then they have um, a couple that are where it's you know one goes and then in 20 seconds another goes. I think I, oh, okay, I do know. Okay, that's right. I think I'm not a hundred percent positive. I'll be an expert on it during the race. I'm sure. But, exactly. exactly. <laughs> but as of right now, yeah, I, I can't, I can't remember. I do know that most of them are the, you know, everyone kind of goes at once type deal. Yeah. All right. Well, um, I guess we'll, we'll go ahead and leave it there. Uh, we'll have plenty of stuff to talk about next week. Uh, we didn't really talk about the games coming up, but it's, uh, it's at Oklahoma state. I'm sorry. It's against Oklahoma State at home on Saturday, and then I believe it's is it Tuesday that they travel or I'm at home against TCU. At on home Tuesday. against Tuesday on Tuesday. Yeah. yeah. Okay. There we go. So it's they've got they've got their probably easiest stretch of the season uh, here coming up with Oklahoma State, TCU, and then Baylor and Iowa State on the road. Uh, even, right. Even though you know the the game against Baylor at home was a a one possession game and, and Iowa State has been a little bit of a bugaboo place for the Jayhawks and, and obviously they, you know, whipped West Virginia and beat uh was it Oklahoma pretty bad or was it uh Texas Tech pretty bad? 
Texas Tech pretty bad. Right. So certainly not not an easy place to win by any means, but Kansas matches up with them pretty well. So you got to think they're gonna at least you know. Well, have I mean, a good, have a good chance to win. I mean, um, you know, you, you also got to think we played Kansas State really close at home and then destroyed them on the road. So it's obviously going to hold for Iowa State. Yeah, there you go. So I mean, there you go. Yeah, but you know, you certainly, you certainly uh, have to look at if if they do manage to win all four of these. Um, you, oh, it, get it's to 11, up get to point. eleven and two. Yeah, you, you have to think, even though. You know, after that, you've got West Virginia, Oklahoma, Texas Tech, which is their toughest stretch of the season. Um, you have to think they're going to have uh, the league wrapped up. Because uh, even even if they lose all three of those games and are at five losses, uh, i got to think five is kind of the most they're going to have. So um, win, win the next four, um, and, and it's pretty much over with. Well, right, especially since, you know, uh, Oklahoma – uh, and West or Oklahoma will have played both West Virginia and Texas Tech in that in that time span before we get to that three game stretch. Um, Texas Tech and West Virginia won't have played, I don't believe. Uh, yeah, no, they don't play again until the end of the season again. But um, you know, it's not likely that both of those teams, you know, like West Virginia and Texas Tech would both have to win out from this point going forward. Um, for Kansas to not have basically wrapped up the division by that point, if, if you know if KU wins all four. Yeah, so, this is where it's it's if they uh, if all these other teams and obviously none of these other teams or, or not all of these other teams can uh, stay with Kansas because um, they some of them like you said play each other. But um, if say you know Texas Tech or whatever can win their next four games too. Then then you get to the point where it's okay, maybe there's a, a little bit of a question. Um, but if they just kind of drop one more, then, yeah, it's it's probably going to be over. Right. I mean, at, at this point, assuming that Texas Tech holds on to beat Texas tonight, um, they will be – it will be them in Oklahoma that are one game back, uh, and that's it. You know, West Virginia's already two games back. So if Kansas can get to that three-game stretch, they're only one game back – um, you know, Oklahoma and Texas Tech play each other, so one of them is going to have to drop two games back. So at that point, in the worst case scenario, you know, you'd have to think that KU is is going to be, uh, you know, either tied or one game back of, um, you know, whoever's leading at that point. But that's only if one of the other teams is perfect, and you know, all these teams have shown the, the capability of dropping games that they really shouldn't. So, um, you know, at this point. A four-game winning streak. I think I'm about ready to call it for the Jayhawks at that point, at least a share. So, yeah. All right. Um, and you know, as I say that, Texas is now up. Or I'm sorry, Texas Tech is now up by double digits on on Texas in the second half. So, all right. Well, in that case, we'll go ahead and leave it there. Um, we didn't really have any uh, questions on Twitter this time. We'll definitely work a little harder to get some. Um, we didn't. You know, the only the only thing left, uh, or the only thing we didn't do was. Our, we were going to do a play on the, uh, the the State of the Union address, given our our call for questions, but didn't really have time for that. But that's all right. We'll we'll find something weird and and fun to talk about next time. So, uh, but definitely, guys, uh, make sure those that are listening that you guys get in contact with us. Send us in any questions you have. You can reach us on Twitter at Rock Talk Talk. Uh, you can send questions to our email address, 
rctsbn at gmail.com. That's Rock Chalk Talk SB Nation, all abbreviated at gmail.com. You can contact me or Fetch directly. Um, you can contact any of the other staff, Mike or, or David or anyone else that's appeared on the podcast before. Um, you can contact us, obviously, on the site through the comment section. We're all pretty active there and like to, to kind of talk about what's, what's going on there. Uh, so uh, make, make sure you find us or, you know, su- subscribe and rate us on iTunes or wherever else you guys get, 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 get your podcast from. It definitely does help. It helps us be more visible, helps more people to find the podcast. It really gives us that feedback we need to kind of make any kind of improvements that we need. So um, I definitely encourage you guys to go ahead and do that. Rate, rate us, subscribe, all that fun again thank thank you guys for listening and we will catch you guys next time on the rock chalk talk podcast sports social podcast network